And I think the subject of hope is one that, in all honesty, we have so many misconceptions about. Misconceptions like when we say hope, typically we mean something like, I, I hope things turn out the way I would like. And, and one of the things, as I was just sitting here and, and thinking about this, I think Christians oftentimes get this accusation against us that, that you're too interested in, in personal salvation. You know, you don't care about the world, you just care about yourself. And, and, and sometimes when we really think about hope and what we hope in and what we want to happen, a lot of it is just about me, what, what I want, how I, I want things to turn out for myself or for my family or for my tribe. But when we speak of hope the way the Bible does, it is not just some individual hope that things work out okay for you. When we speak of hope, we mean the whole creation being restored and renewed. The thesis really is this. How can I get to a point where I can really believe in a hope that says my sufferings in this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is coming? How can we have a hope that says my sufferings, my experience of life that is so difficult, the things I see happening around me, all of those things are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. We're in Romans chapter 8. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. It's also written in your um, handouts if you like jotting down notes. But let me preface this by saying we've done a lot of heavy lifting the past couple months about that glory that is going to be revealed. If you haven't been with us, we've spoken a lot about heaven, about the eternal life that is going to be presented to us and what that means. It's not just a place, the way you think I'm going to heaven. In fact, we talked about how the location of heaven in eternity future is going to be here on earth, a new earth and a new heaven. So the location of heaven isn't so much important as the conditions of heaven, that it is a place where we will dwell with God in his glory, in our own glory, because he wants us to reflect him. It, it is a place, but more importantly, a condition where we will finally be made perfect, where our, our identities and our destiny will finally be fulfilled in Christ and the one who made us, that we will participate with the Godhead in this wonderful existence where there will be no more selfishness, no more pride or greed or war or suffering or disease or loneliness or fear or worry. And this is what I want to persuade you of, that when we talk about suffering, the very existence and experience of suffering, it points to a freedom and a redemption from suffering, and that that gives us hope. Or you could say it this way, if that seems a little bit confusing. The fact that suffering exists tells us that something is wrong, that things are not as they should be. And if we can call some things wrong, we can say some things are right, that there is a way things should be. And God is the one who will one day make all those wrong things right. 
So trust him. The, the fact of suffering, the fact of things not being the way they should be tells you, well, there is a way things should be. So if you get the sense that something's wrong with your life, this world, this existence, you're right. There is something wrong. And you can't fix it. You can hardly fix yourself. But God's promise is revealed that through the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, who conquered death, overcame evil, he is the one who can fix everything and make it new. So the fact that suffering exists, the fact that things are not as they should be, it tells us then, well, well, there is a way that things should be then. There is a standard, that this is not up to some standard that we have. Who can make it meet that standard, this, this existence, this, this life? Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Who's the main character in those few verses? The creation. Now, Christians, we don't believe in a Mother Earth or a Gaia or any kind of a deification of the world or the universe or the creation. There is only one God and no other gods. So when Paul talks here about the creation, he doesn't mean that it's an actual thing, like a, a person. He's personifying the creation as if it were a person. He's treating the universe and everything in it as if it were a person to make a point about how universal suffering is. Look at how much the creation is suffering. Why is it this way? It, it's the same way that you might look at someone in a very pitiable state and you say, how you know, how awful is the condition that this person has found themselves in? And we're supposed to look at the creation in that way, like pitifully, like how did things end up like this for this creation? Verse 19 and 20 remind us that the creation is not the way it should be because something happened to it. Something happened to it. When verse 19 says that the creation waits with eager longing, you have to imagine someone kind of stretching out their neck and looking for someone. You see this a lot at airports where families are waiting for mom or dad to come through the tunnel. The kids are trying to look around the knees of all the adults, and they're, they're, they're fixated on this point. They know that the plane has landed. They know that at any moment that someone can come out, and the idea that the one that they love is, is going to be there. There's expectation. There's excitement. At the same point, what is there? When a, when a person comes through, if you've ever been in this situation, a person comes through, and it's not your loved one. It's like nothing personal to that guy, but I'm very disappointed that it's not dad. Right? So there's that, you know, as you see people coming through, anticipation as well as disappointment. Because, nope, that's not him. Nope, that's not her. And in the same way, the creation has this expectation. There's an eagerness, but there's also a frustration that things are not the way they should be. The, what, what the creation is expecting is not happening just yet. Now, now, what is the creation waiting for? What is it anticipating? 
says here the revealing of the sons of God. What, is, what does that mean? Things are messed up. Things are not as they should be. We're imagining the creation sort of waiting for things to be the way they are. And the thing that will make things better is this revealing of the sons of God. Now, just to clarify, the, the term sons there includes sons and daughters. It's just a generic term for, say, children or offspring. The revealing, then, is, is more like a coronation, not, not revealing this is, you know, you know, on the day you were born and you blast out the social media, you know, oh, so-and-so was born. Um, this is a coronation revealing the heir to a kingdom, per se. They've, they've been there the whole time, but now they are being received as the rightful ruler on the throne. Or, or that moment, maybe if that's not as, uh, you know, uh, personal to you, that moment in a wedding where the bride and the groom are standing at the altar, the officiant declares, I now present to you husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs., so-and-so. It's that same kind of, they're, they're the same people up there. They didn't necessarily change their identities, but now they are something different and something new. They're being revealed as a family. So here, Paul is talking about a special day when all the children of God will finally be declared and officially, you could say, presented as righteous, glorious children and the people of God with all the rights and privileges thereof. This magnificent moment because it'll be the same moment when everything will be made good and right and whole, including the creation. So the creation is like waiting for that day because it also means the restoration of the creation. But what happened to the creation? You have words here that we just read, like subject to futility, set free from bondage and corruption, groaning in the chains of uh, pains of childbirth. None of those sound super pleasant. So the solution is the revealing of the sons of God, but you still haven't got to really the symptoms and the problem. The symptoms are futility and corruption and pain. The word futility doesn't mean empty as in nothingness, but empty as in working super hard only to have it produce hardly anything. So last week I went to the gym for the first time in months, many, many, many months, okay? And um, I know this isn't exactly how the calorie counters on the stair stepper and the treadmill works, but you know, I haven't worked out in a while, so I get on there, you know, <laughs> a few minutes already, you know, the sweat is pouring, I feel like I'm, my heart is going to explode, my legs are like jelly, and then the little calorie counter reads after like 15 minutes, like 50 calories, right? Now, a, a Krispy Kreme donut is like 190 <laughs> calories, and I know it doesn't work like this, but what does your mind say? Like, I am not going to run an hour, to eat one donut. That's a total waste of my time. You know, 15 minutes for a quarter of a Krispy Kreme donut? That doesn't feel like it's worth it. But actually, real life can sometimes feel even more futile than that. You work and work, you, you toil under bad bosses, you study and study and study, you try to make mom and dad happy, you try to prov provide food for the family, but sometimes it, feel, it feels like you get almost nothing for all of your effort and work. 
especially when one emergency or, or accident can set you back to square one, especially when the government or a pandemic or war or an earthquake can completely turn your life upside down. It feels like a lot of time in life you can put so much effort in and get nothing back. That's futility. Because of what happened to the creation, this futility of life, we see it all around us. And I think most of us here can probably understand that sense of the grind of life and how much it can seem like no matter what you do, things don't change. Or when we do make it up to the next rung of the social or economic ladder, it's not nearly as fulfilling as we imagined it to be. In fact, all that awaited was more work, especially in Orange County. It makes you think, is the effort really worth it? That question, that idea, that is the futility of this creation where it can seem like. So even the creation is experiencing that, but that is to say that we all, everything in the creation experiences that kind of sense of why does it seem like put in so much effort for such little back? The bondage of corruption that is mentioned here in verse 21 refers to the death and decay that also defines our existence. Of course, all living things die. Everything we own will one day end up in a dump or a landfill or littering the ocean. Our precious items will rust or get threadbare. Plants and animals and people will one day leave us. It's bondage in the sense that there's no seeming way out of that paradigm of death and decay. It's inexorable, inevitable. And I know you young people, I know for a season you think just the opposite because you're getting taller, you're getting stronger, you're, you're growing in wisdom. That is a gift. That is the gift of life that God gives. But eventually you'll know fading eyesight, you'll know withering health, You'll know getting on the treadmill and just sweating your eyeballs out for 20 calories. You'll know those things. This is the bondage of corruption that the creation languishes under. The things, it shouldn't be like this. We don't want it to be like this. Something's wrong about the death and decay. There's something wrong about that futility. There is something hopeful about that last description, though, about... Um, groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Well, of course, from what I've heard, <laughs> never had a kid. It's suffering. It's painful. Uh, it can be torturous. It's, for some women, the worst pain they'll ever experience. But there's a purpose, because after all that pain and suffering, there is something beautiful and wonderful a new life, a child birthed from that process. But it is difficult to get to that point. There is agony, but there is hope. And that's the, the picture that we have of the, the creation. It's looking forward to some future restoration, but until then, it is under this awful load of corruption, death, decay, futility, now, I'm not sure what everyone's background is here. We tend on Easter Sunday to get, um, you know, folks from, from the area and folks who are coming to town, folks who maybe, you know, don't go to church except on 
uh, Christmas and Easter. But no matter your background, where you've come from, what you've experienced, I, I think we could agree that the world can be just as I described, this sort of awful, terrible place. It doesn't mean that everything's bad all the time, of course, but I think we could get together and agree, even if you're not a Christian, even if you grew up in a totally different kind of religious background or cultural background, that we could say that the world is pretty messed up sometimes. Now, I don't want to be overly negative because there are beautiful moments too. We could agree on that, I think. And there are times where you can really see that life has some meaning. But don't we all sense that so many things are not as they should be? Don't you sense that you yourself are not as you should be? So we see all these symptoms of something wrong or off. We could hopefully agree on that. What caused this? What's the root cause? These are symptoms of a root cause. What's the root problem? And, and we see here in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. How did it get this way? And why does it matter? Well, it matters because depending on, things how, uh, on how things got so messed up, the solution is different. If things are messed up because we live in this cold, indifferent purposeless universe and we're just a bunch of atoms and molecules slamming into each other there's really no meaning to anything there's no problem you can't say there's a problem or right or wrong because an atom went this way instead of that way there's there's no moral judgment you can make on molecules combining in certain ways and electrical impulses going certain ways in people's brain you, you, you there's no problem in that sense if the problem though is humans then you start to ask, well, then what's the solution? I mean, you could get rid of all the humans. That's one. Or if you define the problem as with certain people and certain kinds of people, then you just get rid of those certain people and certain kinds of people. And really, that's how the world tends to look at problems. That's why you have so many awful solutions like war, racism, genocide, uh, revolution, civil wars, holocaust, oppression, social injustice. Those are all saying there is a problem and we think the problem is people in some way. And so we got to do something about people. But you see, the, the way you label the problem will affect the solution. That's why it's important. It does matter how did the creation get this way. And Paul says that the creation is subject not willingly, but because of who subjected it. Who does that refer to? Well, there's only one who can subject the whole creation to anything, and that is the one who made the creation, the creator. So the root of the problem, the, way, the reason why things are off in this creation, is that God did it. But what did God do? Why, why did God do it? It's, it's, we're not saying that, that God is the problem. That's not what Paul is saying, but that what has happened is because of God's doing. The true nature of the problem begins at the beginning of creation itself. Way back in Genesis 1 and 2, we read that the first humans, Adam and Eve, were given everything they could ever want or, or need. In fact, you get the sense that the whole creation was created for humanity, for people to dwell in and have fellowship with God, their creator, 
and fellowship with each other and have uh, stewardship over this great big universe, this beautiful, wonderful place. There's nothing evil or wrong in it. The whole, everything, the creation was made to glorify God, but, but for our sake, you could say, so that if God being glorified in us, enjoying, appreciating, living in this creation. But rather than be content, Genesis tells us they tried to grasp the one thing they could not have. And they had everything good, everything beautiful. They wanted, though, the one thing they could not have. And it wasn't a fruit. If you're familiar with the story, there's a tree with the knowledge of good and fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so on. It wasn't the fruit that they wanted per se. It's what that fruit represented. The one thing they wanted that they could not have is to be like God. That's the only thing that was held back from them that, because that's the only thing, the one thing they could not have by definition. Again, there is one God. You can't have many gods, so no human being can be God. So they cannot be God or, or be like God in, in, in their own grasping of it. Only God can be God. So the thing that God did that created the problem, corruption and, and futility and all these things is he brought the consequence for divine rebellion upon the creation. The root problem with this creation then is that God brought divine judgment on the people for whom the creation was given. It, 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 is, it is our fault, it really is, that even the creation had to be cursed because that creation was made for us. So when we became cursed, when Adam and Eve and all humanity after them became cursed, it cursed the world along with them. From that moment on, the fate of the creation was going to be bound to the fate of the children of man. And so we get that futility that bondage to corruption. And you see it in Genesis 3 when, when God curses Adam and Eve. He tells Adam that by the sweat of his brow would he get food from the earth. In a way, he's got to fight the creation if he wants to get his, his nourishment when before he could just go and eat and there would be no problem with cultivating the fields. Man would ultimately return to the dust from which he was made, meaning that in a way the creation would fight against him to the point of death, physical death. Things like disease, natural disasters, famines, flood, earthquakes is how the creation fights against man, you could say, returns us to the dust. Even the mystery, there's a mystery actually, just, I read, I see these articles all the time, but um, you know, there's sort of a mystery about why our bodies deteriorate rather than perpetually renewing because there's a time in our life where we're, we're growing as young people and then we get, you know, in our 20s or so and your body does a pretty good job of just sustaining itself. There's not necessarily a reason except for um, the deterioration of our DNA. In other words, like the creation through, you know, particle, you know uh, atomic particles and things, it, it destroys your DNA past the point where it can replicate. Like, but there is not a reason where all of the things being equal, you, you couldn't live forever. It's what they're trying to unlock all the time. Well, genetically, yeah, that, that's sort of possible, except the creation is fighting against you because it's cursed. 
because it is trying to bring you into the dust because we have cursed it. If the problem is, then, that humanity has rebelled against God, God gave us the consequences, judgment for that rebellion, cursed the creation and us with it, separated us from him, what's the solution? I mean, that's really a big, messed-up problem that extends to the furthest corner of the universe, which we don't even really have a conception of. What does that mean, the end of the universe? If if the universe has a, a limit, what's past the universe? Something else? But that's, to, that's the extent. I mean, that, that's a very pervasive problem to have. How can we become children that are not estranged from God, but fully embraced and welcomed by him? Verse 23 says, not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 speaks about a specific group of people, the ourselves. It's a group that only some belong to, that Paul belongs to and some others. They are the ones who are groaning along with the creation. They are agreeing with the creation. Yes, things are not as they should be, but they also have a hope that things will be made right. They are the ones who will be revealed as the sons and daughters of God in verse 19. They are the children of God in verse 21. They are the ones who have the first fruits of the Spirit, will be adopted as sons and have their bodies redeemed in verse 23. What does all that mean? Aren't we all children of God? Well, it's true that all people, all human beings are made in the image of God. And in a broad sense, as those created by God, yes, I suppose you could say that we are his children. Every person who's ever been made in the image of God, in a sense, are his children. But these descriptions and these verses are talking about those who are truly God's children, those that actually embrace God as their father and have that kind of relationship with him and are becoming like him. Not everyone is a child of God in that sense. In fact, no one has ever really had that kind of relationship with God as a child of God except one person, Jesus, who's spoken of in the Bible as the only begotten son of God, truly God, and yet he walked among us as a man. The only way for us to be accepted as a true son or daughter of God is through Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who is truly a child of God. The Bible says that while none of us on the basis of our own power or will or good works can earn that place, that relationship with God because of our sin and the curse upon us, Jesus willingly and humbly came to the sin-cursed world and he subjected himself to the penalty and judgment that we had earned. He did that so that if we put our faith in him, God would be willing to make this substitution that he would see his own son, who is truly his son, and say, instead, I will see a sinner. I will see a broken human being who's rebelled against me. All of us, like Adam and Eve, going our own way, I will choose to look on my own true son as if he had committed 
those acts and deeds as if he was the one who's corrupt and sinful. I'll punish him as such so that I can look on this other group of people and say, you are now my true sons and daughters. That there's this great exchange that happens when Jesus takes upon himself not only our humanity, but our sin and gets on that tree and gives his life for us. We call this substitutionary atonement, that Jesus substituted himself, not only substituting our wrath, he takes our wrath, but we receive his relationship to God so that we can be considered children of God the way Jesus is in all of his glory, in all of his power, in all of his authority. That is the solution to the problem of what is wrong with the creation and what is wrong with us. We cannot do that on our own. We cannot fix the creation. We can't fix ourselves. We can't make ourselves more like God because we are by nature not God. The only thing that can happen is for for God himself to make a way. And this is what the cross and the empty tomb represents, is that what is impossible with man is possible with God, that God can treat us like his children, his true children. Why does Paul mention the redemption of our bodies there? I thought about that. It's really what I keyed in on looking for a resurrection passage. It's not a typical resurrection passage. But that part, redemption of our bodies, that connects us to the resurrection. Our bodies are part of this creation, aren't they? And they are subject to the curse of sin, that decay and death and futility. It's one of the many things that tells us things are not the way they should be. Children shouldn't have to die of cancer. Your parents shouldn't have to suffer from dementia. No one should have to be blind or deaf, but our bodies bear the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin as well as our own sin. If God is going to make wrong things right, if he's going to redeem us and make us whole, he also needs to redeem our bodies as well. Jesus didn't just die spiritually, and that was an ancient heresy, that he only, you know, he didn't have a body. A body's not important. It's more important that he died for us in spirit. He just needed to redeem our spiritual beings. No, our bodies are part of the creation. Our bodies also need redemption. That's why Jesus became God in the flesh, in the incarnation. Christians not only say that because the Bible says so, that Jesus took flesh, but because it's necessity. It is out of necessity that Christians believe that if God wanted to make us whole and right, he'd he'd have to make us whole and right in our bodies as well, which means that likewise, God would have to pay the price of our sin in a body. When we celebrate the resurrection, we are making the claim that Jesus, in fact, conquered death, not just as a spiritual event, but as a literal, physical consequence of our sins. Jesus had to die and rise again in a body. I like the word groaning. I do it a lot. (laughs) I like the idea of groaning inwardly. (laughs) 
most of well, when I was younger, I think I've probably grown inwardly more. Now I've grown outwardly a lot. You go to my house, and you'll hear a lot of groaning. And uh, it used to be just, you know, me being frustrated, you know, because uh, they, they didn't have my favorite meal at the cafeteria. Like, oh, come on. As I got a little bit older, the things I started to groan about was, man, this is, why are people the way that they are? Why are things the way they are? As I got a little bit older, why am, the, why am I the way that I am? Like, what is wrong with me? Now I'm adding to that, just groaning because my body hurts. I wake up and my back is sore, my neck is sore. So much groaning <laughs> in my life right now. Every time we groan, <laughs> that should remind us there is redemption. There, there, there is a day coming when we will have to groan no more. What a glorious day that will be. There's so much suffering and pain in the world and things we've experienced. There's parents agonizing over paying the bills, grandmas and grandpas languishing in nursing homes, children in NICUs, the suffering of war and death like we've been seeing in Ukraine. Jesus rising from the dead means that there is hope that all of that groaning will one day turn into rejoicing. For in this hope we are saved, or we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There is hope. Hope in the Bible doesn't mean something you wish would happen, and maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Hope in the Bible is living life with the assurance that God will keep his promises. Some things which, of course, you do not see now or else it would not be a promise. But the resurrection is exactly this justification for our hope. How do I know that suffering can produce glory? that is immeasurable? How can I know that the bad things and the wrong things of this life can be made wonderfully, gloriously good for the children of God? Because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He suffered pain and shame. It's not, and we've talked about this before, but it wasn't just that he was, you know, nailed to a cross and suffered physically, 39 lashes on his back, torn to, to hamburger meat, huge nails put through his hands and feet, laboring for each breath, a crown of thorns. All of that is horrific in his pain, but he was also shamefully treated. He was mocked. You, know, you get mad when you get accused. There's nothing worse in my childhood than when I was accused of doing something I didn't do. I get so upset. I mean, there's a ton of bad stuff I did do. They never called me out on that. They never saw it. What it frustrated me, isn't that so funny? The, the things I, I, I didn't do and I get accused of, I was so indignant about. And yet I was doing a bunch of other bad stuff. It's, you might as well just, you know what? Yeah, I deserve this, even though it's not the right thing <laughs> for me to be judged about. I mean, I've done so many things you didn't know. But I would be so indignant, so upset of being accused of something I did not do. And I know many of you are the same way. Here's God, the perfect son of God, being accused of sin, being mocked, being spit upon and struck, being stripped naked and hanging on a cross as 
next to thieves and murderers, being associated with the worst kinds of people, his suffering wasn't just physical. He was abandoned by his closest friends. And ultimately, even to have somehow in some way, can't even fathom, but his relationship to the Father in some way brought into tension. You just can't even fathom that. He's God. It wasn't just that he died a, a physical death <laughs> and he paid for our sins, he poured his blood. No, but he suffered in a horrific way, spanning all the ways that we suffer mentally, emotionally, physically. Why? To give us hope that all of that wrong that we experience and see can be turned into a glorious new day, can be turned into an empty tomb where all there will be left is light and truth and beauty and perfection, no tears, no suffering. Because of that first resurrection Sunday, we can also say, while we groan now, while we suffer now, there is hope of a glorious day of redemption. All things will be made new. Now, if you aren't a Christian, you are still suffering, languishing under the futility and bondage of corruption of this life. And the problem is you don't have that hope. I mean, we're all suffering that. But the difference is the children of God have a hope that all of those things will one day be turned to crowns, to glory. If you're not a Christian, you will not be able to stand before God and say, look at all the things I self-actualized. I, I was part of a lot of nonprofits. I did a lot of good things. But what, what God will ask is, but are your sins which you committed, do you think that a, a, a murderer should be able to just pay a lot of money or walk enough old ladies across the street and uh, be absolved, declared innocent? N no. I mean, we would think any judge that would accept that deal, like, no, no, don't give me prison or anything. I'm just going to, I'm going to be sure to be a good person. I'm going to help a lot of nonprofits and stuff. Um, so just declare me innocent, let me go. Like, you wouldn't expect a judge to do that. God is not going to be bribed like that either. Every sin, every wrong thing we've ever done, everything wrong that's ever happened, we want them to be right. But that means they also need to be judged as having been wrong. And that includes everything we've ever said or thought or done. If you're not a Christian, you don't have a hope that those things have been forgiven. You haven't substituted your life with Jesus' life, so that you can be considered a child of God. But you can have that this morning if you believe that Jesus did, in fact, do these things. If you would turn away in humility from those sins, from that rebellious life, and put your faith and trust totally in him who will redeem all the creation, you can today have this hope and this promise that you'll be received as a child of God. If you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian this morning, I do hope that the, the thoughts here would make us think a little bit bigger about what we are hoping in. Not to just think, you know, hope only matters to me if good things happen to me. If I get what I want and God is going to take care of me, I, I hope that when you think of the whole creation suffering under futility, it would make you think, you know, maybe there's a bigger thing going on here. 
Maybe God is trying to do something more than just make my life better or just give me hope. Maybe he's trying to give other people hope around you. Maybe he wants to use you to give some hope to people who are suffering and languishing, not just to think of ourselves and make sure we're good. And God, I thank you for taking care of me and not thinking of others. I'm compelled by that because there are so many around us that are suffering and going through trouble. Do they know that there is hope? Have you told them? For all of us, may this draw us to worship our God more and more each day until our faith is made sight and we'll see our Savior and our Lord in glorious new bodies, in the glorious new heavens and earth, and the creation itself will finally heave that sigh of relief. Things are as they should be, and they will be forever that way. Let's hope in that. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your truth and your word, for the hope that can only come from the creator of all things, the one who knows all things, the one who loved us and sent his son to die for us. I pray, Lord, that you would get all the honor and the glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.